Well, I tell you, there's nothing that I enjoy much more than hearing the sound of men's voices and standing up here near the front. We had a great men's group up here leading us, and uh, I really was blessed by them. You know, there's somebody else's anniversary right here whom you might know, and that is Jerry and Judy Chambers. They're celebrating their anniversary. And who said it wouldn't last? (laughs) That's pretty good. You also have a great wife. (laughs) Um, Our scripture this morning is going to be Psalm 23. Very familiar passage of scripture, so don't go on autopilot on me because this is the most beloved psalm of the most beloved king in Hebrew history. King David wrote these words. And as you're looking them up, I know you're thinking about Pastor Scott today and uh, he's on his sabbaticals. The church has uh, given him that each seven years very wisely. Scott's already had some great learning opportunities for which I'm jealous. One of the opportunities he had this this past week, uh, he's been to the Southern Baptist Convention. That kind of balances getting a great learning opportunity. Um, he he's going to have some special time with family. He and Sherry He's going to have a week alone with God in solitude and prayer. This is an important sabbatical for six weeks. And uh, I know you're thinking of he him and he and Sherry. And you'll be praying for them that God will just give him everything in this six weeks that he desires to do in his life. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, and my cup runs over. Surely, 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 goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord. Forever. I want to uh, make a confession. Oh, great. This is even better. I want to make a confession here about uh, Marilyn and my sordid past. <laughs> well, maybe I just want to confess Marilyn's sordid past. And... <laughs> No, actually, we have these things in common. We grew up in Texas and we grew up Baptist. Now, we we long ago escaped Texas. But we've never escaped growing up Baptist. And you know what? I'm glad. You know, through the years, I've had to learn to mature in character and discernment and understand what is biblical and what is just cultural, what is wheat and what is chaff. But I'm very thankful for my spiritual tribe 
and the equipping for life that they gave us. And as I think about my spiritual roots, music has always been an important part of that, as it is for most of us. Music so captures the soul and the spirit of the mighty God who loves us and whom we serve. And the name B.B. McKinney emerges because the hymnals that I sing from are filled with his music. He was the most prolific of all the Baptist songwriters. And of all the songs that B.B. McKinney wrote, there is one that is far and away the most popular, and that is the song, Wherever He Leads, I'll Go. Any of you familiar with that song? Familiar with that song? Some of you are. Well, you're going to get to hear it before the service is over today. I think the reason that that song is such a, a popular song among my spiritual tribe is because it captures the character of the commitment that was in the hearts of many of us when we presented ourselves to Christ. In fact, some of us were singing the very song when the Spirit tugged at our hearts and drew us to Him. That was true for me. And yet I do remember thinking this. Lord, wherever you lead, I will go. But I sure would like to know where it is you are taking me. Ever felt that way? I think that's a common desire among Christ's followers. That we would be so close to the Almighty that we could sense His presence and hear His voice. Now, is that possible? Well, in the 10th chapter of the Gospel of John, the shepherd of the 23rd Psalm identifies himself. And Jesus is speaking there in John chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. And he says these words. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who's not who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice, a stranger, they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Apparently from that scripture and from Psalm 23, where we read, he leads me by the still waters. He leads me in the path of righteousness that we can know and follow the voice of the shepherd. So how do we come to recognize the voice of God? Well, uh, I think we human beings tend to, do, to go one or two to one or two extremes. One of them Becky talked about in her wonderful sharing of her own story the other day. One of the extremes that we go to is is uh, to view God as the absentee author. 
God gave us the Bible and now he is retired from any direct guidance and involvement in our lives. It's all there in the word after all. And there are some truths to that because the Bible does contain the parameters of the guidance of God. It's all there. But it does not recognize the activity of the spirit in our lives that interacts with the word who allow us to hear the voice of God. And so it defeats God's immediate purpose in our life, which is to build in us an intimate love relationship with him. And we hear his voice in the relationship. But others of us go to the other extreme, which Becky mentioned the other day, and I think a lot of us have been here at times in our lives. And that is the view that God is the instant messenger. You know, he's constantly text messaging us. In fact, I was interested to hear from Ryan the other day on Easter that that God tweets. And I think that's very tweet, but I don't understand Twitter at all. Barely understand text messaging, but is he out it? God is in constant communication with us, and I dare not make a step until I hear direct guidance from God. What do I wear today? What am I going to have for lunch? You know, we freeze up there. And the other problem with God, the instant messenger, is that it defeats his ultimate purpose in our lives, which is to mature our character after the character of Christ. God is not about creating Stepford Christians. He is seeking mature Christ followers who can enter the arena of moral decision making. God is working on us to build people with whom he can entrust his power. That's a quote from Dallas Willard, and I want to say it again. I want you to think about it. See whether you can put your minds around it. God is at work in our lives to develop us into people with whom he can entrust his power to do his work in his world. And so God develops maturity by sometimes withholding direct guidance. And at those times, he's teaching us lessons about patience, about endurance, about perseverance, about coming to to trust that God is always enough and that God is always faithful. And the most important thing that we need to come into uh, reality, uh, to come to grips with this morning is can we trust the character of God? Can you trust God's character? Even when you cannot clearly hear his voice, you have said wherever he leads, I'll go. Do you trust him enough to make that commitment? It seems that God works that way a lot in the scriptures. For example, with the patriarch Abraham, Abraham was the father of Israel. And one day out in the desert, God appears to Abraham and he says, Abraham, I am going to make you the father of a great nation. You're going to have so many children that you won't even they won't be able to be numbered. At this point, Abraham's 75 years old. He has absolutely zero kids. And God says, I'm going to make a huge number of children out of you. So here's what I want you to do, Abraham. I want you to pack up your belongings and I want you to move from this place of your security and your identity to a land which I will show you. And so Abraham packs up his belongings, huddles the family into the uh, his U-Haul camel and backs it down the, the driveway. And then he waits 
and he waits and he waits and all he hears is the sound of absolute silence. And already this early in the journey, Abraham is going to have to trust in the character of God. Can God be trusted to take you where you need to go, even when you do not immediately hear his voice? And of course, the rest of the story is that Abraham did trust most of the time with some notable failures that we're still dealing with today. But largely he trusted God and God proved himself to be trustworthy. And so the most important statement in this beautiful song. The Lord is my shepherd. He is with me. He will guide me. And he will give me what I need. On the journey. Now, as we move from that most important reality, there are a couple of places that this psalm says we can know clearly our father, our shepherd will lead us. And those are important to highlight today and to build into our lives as we follow Christ. So let's let's look at those. As you look at this passage before you, the first thing you see is that our shepherd will lead us into rest and restoration. Now, this is such a beautiful truth that is crucial to the Christ following life. And it is so alien to our culture that we're not going to talk about it this morning. We're going to talk about it next week. And we're going to do so through the case study of of a great prophet in the Old Testament on the worst day of his life. So we'll get back to this one next Sunday. So moving right along, we see secondly in Psalm 23 that we can know our shepherd will lead us into meaningful service and work for his name's sake. He leads me in path of righteousness for his name's sake. Now, I have a question for you this morning. We could apply this path of righteousness as an overall lifestyle. But the question I want us to grapple with this morning is, have you come To be able to articulate a biblical doctrine of work. Have you come to wrap your minds and your lives around what it means to be a Christ follower in the workplace? Sometimes I think uh, one verse of the 23rd Psalm applies here as we try to figure out how to be a Christian in the workplace. It's it's the verse. uh, uh, What verse is this? It is the verse. That you will find on verse five. Now think about the little boy who was uh, acting up at supper. And he was just being generally an all around pain. And finally, his parents had had enough. And they said, that does it. You are banished from the table. We're going to set up a high chair over here. Your baby brother's high chair. And you have to sit in the corner and eat by yourself. Since you can't behave and you disrupted the family. So the little boy is sitting over in the corner. And the family gets back to its meal, and then they hear him loudly pray, Lord, thank you for preparing me a table in the presence of mine enemies. I'm sure that went well with his punishment program. And I think sometimes we carry that one over into the workplace. It's such an alien, hostile culture. 
But is there a biblical doctrine of being a Christ follower in the marketplace? I read somewhere that the average American, whoever that is, will work about 83,000 hours over his lifetime. He'll spend 83,000 hours on the job. Now, of course, naturally, I got curious about that and I computed it out. Eight hours a day, five days a week, 50 weeks a year, you know, vacation comes in. That's 41 and a half years spent on the job. Now, I have a feeling that's a low ball estimate. What do you think? Eight hour days, five days a week, 41 and a half years. But even take that amount. That is a huge slice out of a person's life. Now, can I articulate a biblical approach to the workplace? If I can't, then I have just created or committed that that terrible failure in which I have compartmentalized my faith and trivialized it right out of my life and into those little special religious sections that usually occur on Sunday mornings and perhaps it's some small group one night a week. And that's what a lot of American Christians are doing. My Christianity is private. It has nothing to do with my public life. And they just muddle through when it comes to the workplace. We've got to do better than that. God is interested in the details of our life. Jesus is Lord over all or he's not Lord at all. Right. So what is the biblical doctrine of work? For a Christ follower, well, it all begins in Genesis, Genesis chapter one and chapter two. And there we meet God, the original worker. And God has always been a worker. He is still at work in his world today. And the first thing God did in his work was to create the cosmos. And then he created you and me. And it said it said that he created us in his image. And then he gives us the human job description. And what does Genesis say our job description is? It says that we are to be workers together with God, taking care of his creation and then taking a part of it and multiplying it to his glory and for the common good. So whether you work primarily with people, ideas or things, God has entrusted you to a small with a small part of creation and he desires that you be fruitful and multiply it. For his glory and the common good. And there is no such thing as a trivial part of that. You can sweep sidewalks. You can do as Brother Lawrence, the great spiritual leader, did. Wash dishes. All to the glory of God. And when you do that to his glory, he is pleased. And so when I approach my work, I approach it from the standpoint that I am a laborer together with God. Now, here's a, a New Testament verse or actually two verses that I want you to take and, and conduct an experiment with this with this week. And those two verses are Colossians chapter three, verses twenty three and twenty four. And they're right there before you on the screen. Would you try this every morning? When you get up to go to work, read this passage Memorize it and quote it and they can seek to live by it. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for men. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ 
you are serving. So as a follower of Christ, who do you work for today? You work for God. He is your employer. And God being God, he deserves your best effort with your best attitude. Now, this transcends a cranky boss, irritable co-workers and clients, a less than perfect work situation because you work for God. You want to give him your best effort with your best attitude. And so you do an honest day's work, whether or not you get an honest day's pay. You add value to your company, whether or not your company values you. And you treat your, create your, you treat your clients and co-workers as if they matter, even if you don't like their practices and their professions. You work to please Jesus. You treat people as if they have dignity given to them by God, because indeed they do. Will you try that experiment with me this week? Now, you look for the opportunity to speak a word for Christ. You may not ever be able to wave a Bible in front of them in the workplace to uh, give the full gospel story to them. But you stand ready to do so. And you certainly stand ready to work to the glory of God. And when you do, people may not carry you around on their shoulders and shout your praises and what a wonderful Good guy you are, but God will be pleased and you will be the recipient of his smile. You will have reflected and extended his glory in a most important arena of life, the workplace. And sometimes God uses your investment in a long chain of events to change a life. About a month ago. We weren't here because Marilyn and I returned to the mothership. That is, we uh, I got to speak at Calvary Baptist Church of Renton, which is the mother church of Meadowbrook. And uh, I had served there from 1986 to 1985. It was the first chance to go back and actually speak. Pastor Grant, Grant Bowles was doing a good job there, and he was kind enough to invite me to speak. And one of the people who came up. Gave me a big smile and, and a big hug was Dick Van Diver. Now, Jerry and Judy probably remember Dick Van Diver from their days at the mothership. And uh, Dick today is a deacon at that church. He and Mary Ann serve faithfully and they serve well. But I remember the first time he came onto the property of that church. And he was an extremely worried man. By his own admission, he was not religious. I get that a lot when people come to see me. Well, I'm not religious, Reverend, but. 
The last time he had been in church other than for a wedding or a funeral was when he was a teenage boy and he had vandalized some property and generally terrorized the neighborhood. And he had been assigned to a local pastor for rehabilitation. And he spoke well of that pastor, but he never returned to church for worship. But that night, as Dick Van Diver sat in my office, he was very worried about his 20 year old son. His son was kind of a loner kind of a guy, and all of a sudden he began not showing up from work until the wee hours of the moment. And, and as Dick checked it out, he found out there were some characters in big black limos who would pick Aaron up after work and take him downtown to Seattle for who knows what. And Aaron had become increasingly distant and uncommunicative, and Dick was worried out of his mind. And then he thought of Rick, a fellow worker at the Boeing plant in Renton, who he knew was a Christ follower. And and Rick did not wave his Bible. He did not preach, but he was not ashamed of Christ. And he lived it out in the workplace and his relationships with his co-worker, Dick. And so Dick opened up his heart to a friend he felt he could trust. And that conversation eventually led to my office. And over the next, oh, relatively short period of time, we had the privilege of seeing Dick and Marianne Van Diver and their son, Aaron, and their daughter, Kathy, born into the kingdom of God, give their lives to Christ. And one of the first things that happened is Aaron told the guys in the limo to take a hike. And he got deeply involved in growing as a Christ follower. And it was just a joy to watch them in their growth. And then fast forward roughly a year, probably about the time Jerry and Judy ended up in Germany for a while. I presided at the funeral of Aaron, that 20 year old boy who getting off work one night was struck and killed by a hit and run driver going down Rainier Avenue in downtown Renton at about 85 miles an hour. And in Aaron's pocket was the New Testament that his deacon, Stu Vesey, had given to him. And then I got to sit with Dick Van Diver as he was interviewed by news reporters who wanted to know just how he felt about the person who was responsible for the death of his son. And to hear him bear witness to the difference Christ had made in his life. You see, sometimes that quiet investment of a life in the workplace is one link in a chain. In which God resolutely pursues a person through the days of his life. You are linking the chain. You just don't want to be the missing link. My dad used to tell me. Do the best you can. Where you are. With what you have. For Jesus sake today. Not bad counsel. And speaking of my dad. First job I ever had. It was the privilege of getting up at 430 in the morning on Saturday mornings as a 12 or 13 year old and pulling a milk route with my dad. He was a milkman and he somehow felt that I would probably enjoy, you know, spending my Saturdays getting up at that time of the morning. And just to expand the joy during the summers, it was pretty well every day, you know, of the week. I got up at 430 in the morning and, you know, pull the milk route with my dad. My dad was far from God for those years of his life and. Where it really showed was in the workplace. He was he hated his job. 
He was suspicious of all his co-workers. And he thought he had the crummiest group of customers that any anybody could possibly have. He just complained all the time. And that made it all the harder to get up at 430 in the morning. But then as somebody told me this week about their own life, he was bowled over by the kindness and grace of God. And it showed in the workplace. You know, I would have thought now that dad was giving his life to Jesus, he would no longer feel the need to get me up at 430 in the morning and make me go work with him. But it didn't work out that way. He still thought it was a privilege for me to do that. Back when I was 16, I got my commercial operator license just so dad could get a vacation. I pulled the route for him. But what I discovered on the route was suddenly all of his fellow workers were not such jerks. Suddenly it. The job was a privilege to represent Christ there. And he had some of the best customers in the world. Now, what had changed? The job, the co-workers and the customers? My dad had changed. And he was working as if God were his ultimate employer. And that impacted a 16-year-old boy. And was a driving force in my consideration to respond to that song. Wherever he leads, I'll go. Can you articulate a biblical doctrine of what it means to be a Christ follower in the workplace? Lastly, where does our shepherd lead us? It says, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. That that wording there literally is the valley of the dark shadow. And our father will lead us into the dark shadow. And what that means is when the shadows appear, the shepherd is near. He calls out to us and he will lead us safely home. When the shadow falls in your life, listen for the voice of the shepherd. Several years ago, a little boy could have been one of our little boys, just possibly. Was given permission by his parents to go over to the friend of a a buddy and he could play as long as he promised to come home by dark. Oh, yeah, Dad, I promise, I promise, I promise. So what happened? Well, he was having so much fun playing with his friend that. He forgot all about the time and suddenly the the evening shadows were falling and and he realized suddenly it was getting really, really dark and he still had to help his buddy pick up all his toys. And so they got busy real fast. And then with the the darkness descending, that little boy headed home and and to save time, he decided to take a shortcut through the city park, which was a beautiful park, mainly because it was filled with this grove of thick, leafy trees which also obliterated the sun and made the dark even darker. And the little boy was beginning to experience just a tinge of fear, even as he was anxious about meeting mom and dad when he got home late in the darkness. And then, of course, it clouded up, got darker, and it started raining. And now it was pitch dark. He was in the middle of the the grove. The wind was whistling through the treetops. Rain was Striking his face and that little bit of fear had morphed into a huge amount of terror. 
And it was at that point that little boy thought he heard the sound of approaching footsteps. Well, he was mortified. He started walking faster, but the faster he walked, the closer the footsteps got. And he was ready to break into a run, but it was as if his feet were were magnets and they were stuck to the path. He couldn't move. And then he heard a voice. And his feet got unstuck. And he ran into the arms of his father. He heard the familiar voice of his dad and he knew he was safely home. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the deep shadow, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff. You comfort me. And these days I'm thinking about the darkest shadow of all. And since we've been with you here at Meadowbrook, my mom has gone to be with the Lord. Marilyn's dad recently went to be with the Lord because of the generosity of Meadowbrook. We got to attend their services in Texas. But I come to realize how special it is to know that in my father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again and receive you to myself. And for a Christ follower, even the prospect of death bears with it the promise that where the shadow appears, the shepherd is near. He calls out to us and he leads us safely home. And for us, the death is like, you know, standing at the threshold of two rooms. And, and we look into one room and we observe what's going on there and we converse. But all the more we hear the call of the shepherd and our attention is turned to look into another room. And soon we are adjoining a magnificent conversation in the most beautiful of rooms. And we hear the father say, welcome home. And heaven for the Christ follower is a place of the richest of relationships, the deepest of worship. And just in case you think you're just going to sit on a cloud and strum a harp all day and wonder if you should have brought a magazine like the Far Side cartoon, you're going to have meaningful work to do. You're going to work alongside the original worker. And when Jesus comes and this earth passes away, we have a new heaven and a new earth. And we will get to run this place in fellowship with the father the way it was always intended to be run. And so, indeed, the Lord is our shepherd. And how do you hear his voice? How do you come to hear it? William Barclay, the great biblical commentator, compared British shepherds with the shepherds of Israel who are represented in the scriptures. British shepherds, he said, typically raise sheep for food. They know them a short while and then they're slaughtered. But the shepherds of Israel raised sheep for wool. And so there was a long, close, nurturing relationship. The truth is sheep are kind of smelly, dirty, stupid, and stubborn. Sounds like anybody you know. They're not all the cuddly creatures we make them to be. 
And if the shepherd did not stay close to them and constantly call out to them and guide them with the, the shepherd and with the staff and the rod and protect them with the staff and the rod and discipline them with, with the staff and the rod, they would perish. But the sheep learned to hear the voice of the shepherd. They recognize even his discipline is for their good. And so they follow that voice because they know goodness and mercy will follow them all of their lives if they stay and listen to the voice of the shepherd. Stay close to the shepherd. And you will come to recognize the nuances of his voice midst the confusing, conflicting clamor of many voices. Do you know the shepherd? Of the 23rd Psalm, Jesus said in the end of that, that wonderful Psalm, or I'm sorry, in, in, at the end of that wonderful passage of John 10 that we read from a moment ago. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given to them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. So will you this morning? Will you, first of all. Surrender the shepherd. Can you say wherever you lead, wherever I will go. Will you seek intimacy with him? You know him. In the context of a relationship, will you acknowledge him this day as your ultimate employer? Will you take the Colossians three test this week? And finally, will you cast your cares on him in the midst of your present shadow? Listen for the voice of the shepherd calling out to you to lead you safely home. In a moment, we're going to worship through giving. And as we worship through giving, we each have an opportunity to turn those connection cards in. And you can take that connection card. You can write down a prayer request and you can write down a next step decision that you are making in response to how God is speaking to you through worship and the word today. I counsel you, use this moment and that opportunity Wisely, I'm going to pray for you, Father. Now you had us here by divine appointment and you have spoken to into our lives through worship and through your word. Now, may we have ears to hear hearts to respond in Jesus name. Amen.